0: Eric 877 973 I want to go back to this Atlantic story, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg and the like, and, and what they're saying. I want to play for you some audio uh from the Atlantic from uh fr- from Jeffrey Goldberg and he was on TV over the weekend. He's made a couple of statements. First of all, he made this statement that the now I guess I should reset first. I'm sorry. So the Atlantic runs the story that the president badmouth our, our soldiers and sailors, called them losers, didn't want to go to cemeteries, and only losers are buried there. John Bolton himself has come out pretty forcefully over the weekend, a, a man who does not like the president of the United States, and wrote a tell-all book about the president of the United States. John Bolton himself came out and said that the initial story and in go- that Goldberg set up, that the president w- didn't want to go to a cemetery in Europe and blame the weather, but really he didn't want to go hang out within the president's words, a bunch of losers in the ground. uh, That's not true, that it was weather-related. John Bolton's come out and dismissed the story. Jeffrey Goldberg uh, went on TV this weekend defending the story. Listen to this. The climate and the president's attacks. Here is his latest broadside against you and your magazine and majority owner Lorraine Powell Jobs. He writes, Steve Jobs would not be happy that his wife is wasting money he left her on a failing radical left magazine. Again, the magazine is not failing. Run by a con man, that's you apparently, that spews fake news and hate. Call her, write her, let her know how you feel, four exclamation points. That seems ominous to me. Do you interpret that as a, a threat?
1: You know, I spent a lot of my career, uh, covering dictatorships in the Middle East. And, and so I'm, I'm familiar with this kind of discourse. It is a threat. It is meant to intimidate. I would only say that we are neither failing nor a radical left. Um, and I would also say, and I'm not speaking for the ownership or the management of the company. I would say that we have excellent owners who value editorial independence and integrity. Uh, and, I would just say that we are not going to be intimidated by the president of the United States. We're going to do our jobs, and I I think that is true for a large number of outlets. His intense frustration, which comes out in these in these outbursts um, comes from the fact that unlike dictators in other countries, he cannot simply shut down media outlets that, uh, that he doesn't like. And, and so it's our duty to continue to pursue the truth no matter what he says about us. And I would say that at The Atlantic and at many other organizations, including yours, there is unanim- unanimity of feeling that um, we, we have a responsibility and we're going to do it regardless of what he says.
0: Okay, basically, if the president says anything in the media these days, they consider it a threat and intimidation. If the president said, go tell them hello, uh, they would say he's trying to get uh, the the Boogaloo Boys or whatever you call them to to come after him. He, He can't win with them. But Goldberg runs the story and most of the media immediately runs out. Aha! It's true. We knew it all along. There are a couple of things here. We need to go in the Wayback Machine, please. The Wayback Machine. Uh, A a name you may not know, Andrew Rosenthal. To understand this story, we need to go back to 1992. George H.W. Bush is running for re-election as president of the United States of America. He is the most popular man to ever serve in office since George Washington now you may let, let me let me pause here because some people raise their eyebrows when I say that. We we do not have public opinion polling going back prior to the 1900s but but one can imagine every president being somewhat divisive except George H W Bush fought the Gulf War and it was the first major military engagement since Vietnam that saw a mass gathering of American troops. Grenada didn't really count. It it, it was a small excursion. The Gulf War was the very first time the American military had been deployed at scale since Vietnam. And not only did we win, we won decisively. And it was a psychological victory for for the boomer generation out there that came of age during Vietnam. It was a big psychological win for them. George H.W. Bush, according to Gallup, George H.W. Bush's popularity went up to 91%, 91%. In fact, George H.W. Bush had, um, after sailing on the high of the Gulf War victory, decided that we were going to raise taxes. And he wasn't going to campaign for anyone unless they were going to raise taxes. He's going to break his no new tax pledge. And in fact, uh, used his clout to push out uh, Ed Rollins from the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee, wouldn't campaign for any Republicans who voted against the tax. It was a big break with Republicans. Newt Gingrich uh, came to fame opposing the tax uh, increase by George H.W. Bush. But the economy was sky high. Things were booming. He was at 91% approval rating. He could get it all done. And then it all came crashing down in a recession with the tax increases. And nobody wanted to run against George H.W. Bush. Um, Mario Cuomo was the governor of New York, and he was the darling of the Democrats. His son, uh, what, Andrew Cuomo is now the governor, Chris Cuomo on CNN. And Mario Cuomo, everyone wanted Mario Cuomo to win. Mario Cuomo looked at the landscape. You got a a president with 91% approval rating. Ronald Reagan didn't have a 91% approval rating. Dwight Eisenhower didn't have a 91% approval rating. John F. Kennedy didn't have a 91% approval rating. And George H. W. Bush did. And he said, no, done, not going to do it. And ceded the field to a young guy from Arkansas, who is still younger than Joe Biden running for president right now, Bill Clinton. William Jefferson Clinton, and Clinton was the young buck who had dodged Vietnam, running against the man who rehabilitated the American military in the, in the boomer's eyes after Vietnam and decided he was going to run and he was going to make it about the economy. And his message was, it's the economy, stupid. And his message was, everyone knows George H.W. Bush is a patriot, but George H.W. Bush is out of touch. He's been in Washington for so long. He was the head of the the Republican National Committee. He was the head of the CIA. He was the ambassador to China. He was the vice president of the United States. He's the president of the United States. He just hasn't lived in the real world. It's not that he's a bad guy. It's just that he's out of touch. And that was their message, that George H.W. Bush was out of touch with America. And he wasn't bad. He just couldn't lead. Well, along comes Andrew Rosenthal. Andrew Rosenthal is a reporter for the New York Times, and he writes a story about George H.W. Bush going to a a grocery expo where they exhibit new technology at grocery stores. And George H.W. Bush saw a remarkable uh, cash register where you could place your produce, for example, on on a laser scanner, and it would weigh it, identify what it was, and charge you for it. And he acted with amazement, according to Andrew Rosenthal, as if he had never seen a grocery store scanner like this. They had been in stores at this time in 1982, the laser scanners where he passed the UPC barcode. They had been in grocery stores for several years. And Andrew Rosenthal made a big story about this, that George H.W. Bush clearly was so out of touch with America. He had never been in a grocery store and seen this remarkable technology that was commonplace. Except there was a catch. Actually, there were a couple of catches. One, the grocery store scanner that George H.W. Bush was looking at actually wasn't the standard laser scanner of the day. The standard laser scanner of the day was not a self-checkout unit. This was. The self-checkout units that weigh the produce and identify them with the camera weren't actually released until after the year 2000. And Andrew Rosenthal wasn't actually there. That's right. Andrew Rosenthal, the reporter for the New York Times who wrote the piece about how out of touch George H.W. Bush was, was not actually there to witness this. There was only one reporter there. It was a pool reporter. The White House at the time, and still to this day, has what's called a pool of reporters. And a reporter or two will accompany the presidents in places where reporters aren't supposed to go, so there's not a big crowd. They'll write up a very generic report and pass it on to other reporters who can comment on it. Well, the reporter who was there was of the Houston Chronicle who until the day he died said this actually was a scanner that was not in production at the time, and George H.W. Bush's reaction was not one of amazement. It was one of inquiry, and he never wrote it that way in the pool report. In fact, other people who were there that day said really it was unremarkable at the time, but Andrew Rosenthal turned it into a major story. It was actually repudiated by the New York Times' reporting later with corrections that, in fact, the people were there said it was was a a machine not yet introduced to the public and that his reaction really wasn't that remarkable. But it didn't matter. The damage was done. The Clinton operation took this story from Andrew Rosenthal, which was spread in newspapers across the country, and used it as proof that George H.W. Bush was completely out of touch with the American public, that he had never seen a, a grocery store scanner, checkout scanner, Again, he had seen grocery store checkout scanners, but this was one that was not actually introduced into the market until a decade later in the year 2000, one that you're all familiar with now, the self-checkout machines at Kroger and now at Publix, where you can put down your Apple, you can say this is an Apple, it weighs it, and, and then you put it in your bag. Those didn't exist in 1992 at the time. That story defined George H.W. Bush as out of touch. The damage was done. He never recovered from it. He lost the election. He was the first president to not win re-election since Jimmy Carter, who himself, it's very rare for a president to not win re-election. That's what this Atlantic story is. If you want to convince yourself that the troops hate the president, the president is out of touch, and the president is bad, you immediately believe the story. You never even have to question it. It comes out, and it's just absolutely, well, Jeff, don't you know who Jeffrey Goldberg is? Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, you can't question him. We owe him the benefit of the doubt because he's an excellent reporter and editor. The Atlantic story starts this way. Hang on. Let me find it again. Uh, I want to I give it to you again just so you understand the context. Out of the gate, this is the beginning of the story. When President Donald Trump canceled a visit to the Ace Marne American Cemetery near Paris in 2018, he blamed rain for the last-minute decision, saying that the helicopter couldn't fly and that the Secret Service wouldn't drive him there. Neither claim was true. Trump rejected the idea of the visit because he feared his hair would become disheveled in the rain and because he did not believe it important to honor American war dead, according to four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussion that day. In a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, why should I go to the cemetery? It's filled with losers. In a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Wood as suckers for getting killed. Now, my presumption is that John Kelly is the source of the story. And the reason I say that is because Kelly was there. He was on the scene. He's the one who wanted the president to go there. He doesn't like the president, and he hasn't come out to deny it. But... Importantly, Zach Fuentes has. Now, who is Zach Fuentes? Zach Fuentes was John Kelly's assistant who was there. And Fuentes says that didn't happen. It actually was weather-related. John Bolton, hang on a second. I got this. Page 142, I believe it was on. John Bolton in his book writes about this. I, I, I managed to keep this. I don't know why. Um, John Bolton wrote in his book that this did not happen. Uh, John Bolton, in fact, in his book wrote that it was disturbing and unprofessional of the press, that the press decided to say it was about the president's hair and that that just wasn't true. Um, and unfortunately the media ran with the story anyway which was, I mean, you should all be disappointed in the American press corps. Of course, we're not really disappointed at this point because we're all used to the president of the United States uh, taking these sorts of actions and and reviewing these sorts of things in the most negative light against the president of the United States. Uh, They tend to do this. Now, here again, this is from page 241 of John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. On Saturday... I went to the U.S. ambassador's residence where Trump was staying to brief him before his bilateral with Macron. The weather was bad, and Kelly and I spoke about whether to travel as planned to the Chateau Thierry Bello Wood monuments to, uh, and nearby American cemeteries where many U.S. World War I dead were buried. Marine One's crew was saying that bad visibility could make it imprudent to chopper to the cemetery. The ceiling was too low for Marines to fly in combat, but Flying POTUS was not too low for Marines to fly in combat, but Flying POTUS was obviously something very different. If a motorcade were necessary, it could take between 90 and 120 minutes each way along roads that were not exactly freeways, posing an unacceptable risk that we could not get the president out of France quickly enough in case of an emergency. It was a straightforward decision to cancel the visit, but very hard for a Marine like Kelly to recommend, having originally been the one to suggest below Wood, an iconic battle in Marine Corps history. Trump agreed and it was decided that others would drive to the cemetery instead. As the meeting broke up and we prepared to leave for the Elysee Palace to see Macron, Trump pulled Kelly and me aside and said, find another spot for Mira. Melania's people are on the warpath. This is about a woman he wanted out of the White House. Kelly and I assumed we were to find an equivalent position elsewhere in government in a calmer setting in Washington. Now, pay attention to this. The press turned canceling the cemetery visit into a story that Trump was afraid of the rain and took glee in pointing out that other world leaders traveled around during the day. Of course, none of them were the president of the United States, but the press didn't understand that rules for U.S. presidents are different from the rules for 190 other leaders who don't command the world's greatest military forces. That's from John Kelly's book. John Kelly, not a fan of the president of the United States, debunks the story. Zach Fuentes, who works for John Kelly, debunks the story. Multiple people debunk the story, and, and, and the story, they, they're running it anyway. And they're doubling down on it in defense of it. And they're, it's all anonymous sources, by the way. And, and Goldberg says they're anonymous sources because they don't want to be bullied online. They, they don't want mean tweets is why they wanted to be anonymous. This is the Andrew Rosenstall story, story all over again. If you hate the president, you're immediately going to believe it anyway. If you hate the president, you're going to believe it. Doesn't matter whether it's true or not. You're going to believe the story because it, it is a, a Rochette blot as to how you interpret the presidency. If you if you defend the president at all, well, you're, you're just you're, you're just you, you love the president. You're in a cult. As opposed to, you know, there are major people who are repudiating the story. Why shouldn't we go with those people who are actually in the room as opposed to the anonymous people who claim they have firsthand knowledge of what happened in the room? We actually have the people who were in the room coming out saying it didn't happen. And yet they'll double down on this story because it's not about the truth of the story. It's about defeating the president. I honestly feel like you guys should be able to hear my stomach coming through the microphone. <laughs> uh, just as I'm about to talk. Like, oh, do I need to mute the mic for for, for that? Uh my goodness gracious. <laughs> uh welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, 877-97 Eric, Eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. 973 7425 I gotta be honest with you. I, I really, I, I need to be honest here for just a moment. I, I don't get the boat parade stuff. I, I, I don't get the boat phenomenon, but it is happening. They had a huge one uh, on Lake Hartwell and on um, Lake Lanier here in Georgia. There was one on Lake Oconee. There was a big one on Lake Travis in Austin, uh, and several of the boats sank uh, but they've had them all over the country, and, and they've been happening regularly, not just on holidays. But obviously, and there was one down on Lake Blackshear as well in South Georgia. I, I don't quite understand the phenomenon of why everybody wants to get on a boat, hoist their flags, and and fly. But, I mean, God bless them for doing it. It, it has become a, a communal thing. And, and if I had to go with the psychology of it and, and uh, armchair psychology here. Let's go back to what I told you. The the pollsters continue to tell me that there actually are a lot of people in the country who don't want to be public about their support of the president. And it is throwing off the polls by a couple of percentage points. And if that's true, then I can kind of understand the cathartic experience of people wanting to be out on boats together, uh, flying their flags for the president uh, in a show of solidarity. You get out there on the boat and you're like, hey, you know, uh, there really are other people supporting. Look at look at the crowds. So I, I I get that. I, I understand that phenomenon uh of the of that level of support, particularly when and I think this is very important in this day and age, there are people out there who very, very much want you to feel isolated. It actually is part of a psychological theory to alienate people so that they feel alone, so that they shut up, so that they they think they're fringe and maybe they need to rethink things. Y'all don't understand that this this actually is something that's going on. And particularly, it happens not just in politics, but in culture as well. Uh, take traditionalism, uh, t- take traditional Christian orthodoxy in this country. Uh, the, the predominant voices the media chooses to expose, the Rob Bells and the like, aren't really Christian, uh, although they have some, some connection to the faith. And they say things, uh, and and they're put up as the prominent voices. And when the when the contrasting voices are put up, you get a, a Jerry Falwell Jr., who's not even a pastor. The guy's a lawyer. People think because his dad was a minister, he's a minister. No, the man has never been in the pulpit in his life. Or they put up that clown Robert Jeffries in 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 Dallas, and those are the people that they're more off-putting than anything. That they don't put up the orthodox voices of Christianity. Uh, The the Kevin DeYoungs, the Tim Kellers, uh, the Al Mollers, uh, they don't put those people on television. And uh, the whole reason they don't is because they don't want you to recognize there actually are voices out there of similarly situated people saying the things you believe on national television. They intentionally want you to feel isolated. They want you to feel alone. So maybe by being isolated and alone, you'll think, well, it's just me. I must be wrong. And so when you have an opportunity to get on a lake and you got a bunch of people in boats together, and they're hoisting the Trump flag, you realize you're not alone. There actually are people out there. Uh, solidarity in, in this, and, and it excites people. That's my theory on this. That's my theory on why people do it. But I don't own a boat. And if I did own a boat, I would want to be like either fishing or or Uh, having a good time with my friends on the boat, not actually in a crowd with a bunch of other boats where I'm going to run into them and sink or they're going to sink me. Uh, I just, I I don't, I don't understand it. Um, But nonetheless, uh, whatever works for you. When we come back, can we talk about absentee ballots and undermining the integrity of the election? Because that's where we're headed at this point. I can see it coming. Good morning and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here the Eric Erickson Show. Across the state of Georgia, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. So I'm having to be on my A game this morning. I, I, I've lost the connection to the studio so they can hear me and y'all can hear me, but I can't hear them. So I can't get the cues as to when to start, when to not. So I'm running stopwatches and everything. We we had to switch to the old ISDN system because, uh, yeah, I I have the, the Internet. The series of tubes uh, known as the Internet is failing us this morning. Now, uh, we got to get into absentee balloting. Uh, I I want to there are a bunch of conspiracy theories floating out there on the left and the right about absentee ballots. Uh, I, I want to tell you a couple of things uh, from my vantage point. I do not believe that there is an intention to overwhelm the system, an intent to overwhelm the system. I do believe the system is going to be overwhelmed, but I don't believe that's the intention. I I really do think that the Democrats have internalized the virus uh, to such an extent that they are scared of it and they are scared of their voters not showing up at the polls And so they want to get everyone to vote by mail uh, as a way to avoid the virus. I I really think that's it. I don't think there's an intention to overwhelm the system, but I think that's what's going to happen. I think the system is going to be overwhelmed. The Secretary of State of Michigan has come out and said it could take two weeks to determine who wins Michigan. And I do think it is bad for the system if the president on election night, for example, or Joe Biden were to win a state. And then have it crawled back by absentee ba- ballots, particularly when absentee ballots can get disqualified for something as easy as a failure to sign. You and I both know that the the challenges with absentee ballots are going to be intense and that I do think Democrats understand this. You know, down in, in South Georgia, there was an election, uh, it was the primary election, the Republican runoff actually, was fraught with problems in one county in large part due to absentee ballots and how they were handled. And uh, there's a challenge now being raised to that runoff election because of the ballots. These things can happen, uh, particularly in smaller races. And and this is the issue here. I don't necessarily believe that the presidential election is going to be cast into doubt, uh, per se, by absentee ballots. But I do think a lot of smaller races around the country could be screwed up. Because in the smaller races where you're talking victories of, of 50 votes instead of 500,000 votes, you have the potential to screw things up seriously. And people are going to question the integrity of the system. Now, one of the things that is also happening, and you need to be weary of this, almost all of you, myself included, by the way, this happened to us uh, over the weekend, you're getting absentee ballot applications in the mail. Some of them are from Republican groups. Some of them are for Democratic groups. They're trying to target their own voters. Uh, what they are not doing, uh, this this would get them in trouble, although my suspicion is we're going to see this happen. Um, it, there, there is there's going to be a system where campaigns or outside groups are going to send you an absentee ballot application. And they're going to screw up the return address. And they're going to, oh, I'm sorry. It was was a typo. Sorry. I, I guarantee you that's going to happen. So in other words, you're going to get an absentee ballot application in the mail from an organization that has willfully misprinted the address of the board of elections for your community and it's going to go to the wrong address and they're they're going to say oh i'm typo our bad sorry but some people are going to use that form and they're not going to get their absentee ballot and that's going to make a difference and that's going to undermine the election and i guarantee you that's going to happen and and they'll they'll claim it was ignorance or typo misreading, uh, so no one's going to get in trouble. But that's going to happen. I do want to tell you though about the absentee ballots you're getting right now. There are forms that people are getting mail. I've gotten one. My wife has gotten one. I actually threw them away. Uh, They're not coming from the secretaries of state. They're not coming from local boards of election. They're coming from outside groups. And that's actually legal and permissible and fine. An outside group can send you as long as they use the proper form. And in Georgia, the form has been updated recently. As long as they use the proper form, outside groups are allowed to send you an application for an absentee ballot, and they can put on prepaid postage so it's mailed in such a way so that it sends to your local board of elections and you can fill it out. And you can tell some of these groups come across as the Citizens Fund for Everyone Voting, the Good Government's Fund to Make Every Vote Count. Typically, when it sounds like that, it's a Democratic group. When they always advertise good governance or everyone voting, that it tends to be a, a Democratic group. When it's a preserve our democracy, let liberty shine through, everyone stand for the president, that sort of, it's, it's a Republican group. It's all about the branding. One way you can tell for certain, and I learned this running a Democratic campaign. So, you know, uh, local elections are, are rather, I mean, local elections are nastier than national elections in large part because local politics is dirty. Everyone, everyone, it's very visceral, everything is very personal uh, and, and everyone can engage in local politics in a way you don't necessarily engage at the national political level because everybody knows each other and, and, and people get whipped into partisan, frenzy, they just get nasty with each other. But I, so when I was a lawyer, I ran a democratic race. Now, there was no Republican. Uh, and my goal was to run a democratic race for a Democrat who was as close to being a Republican as I could possibly get. We actually wound up winning the race, uh, which was good because the other guy, I mean, my guy was pro-life won't work for pro-choice candidates. Uh, he was, he was, he was pro-life. Uh, he was for a limited, I mean, he basically was a Republican, except he was living in an area that was so Democrat. If you put an R next to his name, he would have lost. So he ran as a Democrat. And the one thing I will never forget learning is, is that if you run as a Democrat, you've got to put the union logos on all your mail. I kid you not. uh, We're running this race. We were going to send out a mail piece that I had designed. I had no idea. And the candidate was like, what are you doing? We had to actually reprint the mail that we were sending out because we had left off the union, the, the printer's logo. Believe it or not, there's a printer's union. And if you send out mail in a Democratic primary without the printer's union logo, you're in trouble. Uh, that That's a one telling point uh, that you are a Republican is the printer's. And, and so what you'll see is it's actually it's, it's an oval shape. And it typically says allied printing uh, trades. You got union label in the center and council. And it's this oval with this bar across the middle. And that is the printer's union logo. And uh, underneath at the bottom, they they might identify where they're from. And if you don't have that logo and you're running in a Democratic primary, you're in trouble. I had no idea. And uh, here on out, if I I, I ran a couple of Democratic campaigns, uh, very similar, they were in, in very Democratic areas. You wanted the Republican to win. The Republican had to run as a Democrat. And you had to put on the printer's union logo. And so a couple of people have sent me uh, pictures of their absentee ballots, and then it happened to us this weekend. Well, it happened to my wife, not to me. Uh, we got absentee ballot applications in the mail. And sure enough, if you look under the return address, you'll see that little bitty oval. It's tiny, tiny. You almost need a magnifying glass. But if, if, you, if you look at it closely, you can see it's the printer union logo. And that tells you this was from the... Uh, what, what what was it called? Citizens for Every Vote or something like that. Uh, so, some sort of non-profit group, Citizens for Every Vote, clearly identified as a democratic group by the existence of that union logo. Now, I got one uh, from the Trump campaign, an absentee ballot application. And the Trump campaign is running into problems because the president has so bad mouth uh, early voting that a lot of Trump supporters aren't early voting. And they're just now beginning to turn the tide in places like Florida, where in Florida, the Republicans are encouraging absentee balloting. Florida actually has a very good absentee balloting system. Uh, We're not going to be waiting five weeks for the returns in Florida, given their absentee ballot system. Some states you might, Democratic states we might, um, efficiencies in the system, inefficiencies in the system. But Florida's got a pretty good system. And the Republicans are finally stepping up the game. uh, and They've been very frustrated with the president. So the president's campaign, interestingly enough, Behind the Back of the President has started uh, it has started sending out absentee ballot applications to people, and they're encouraging Trump voters to get their absentee ballots. Now, I, I want to tell you, since since we we're a show in Georgia, uh, if you go to sos.ga.gov, that's the Secretary of State's website. And at the very top of the Secretary of State's website, be south of Brad Raffensperger's face, you will see a banner to secure your absentee ballot. And if you click on the secure your absentee ballot link, uh, you will be able to request your absentee ballot online. In fact, I um, you, when you click in, you, it goes to a website. SecureVoteGA.com. That's the website. SecureVoteGA.com. The Secretary of State's website has conjured this up, and you can request an absentee ballot online. So you put in your first name, you put in your last name. I'm doing this online to show you how easy this is, uh, because I haven't done it. Um, do I actually wanna? Do I actually wanna vote by absentee ballot? I might as well, because who knows. Um, so what you have to have is your first name, your last name, your birthday, and then you got to have your driver's license number. (laughs) 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 That's my musical way of not telling you my driver's license number. And then I'm in Bibb County and guess what? Uh, yes, I want to send it to my, uh, permanent address on file. Uh, I'm going to request the Republican ballot. Not that it matters because it's, it's a uh, primary. I'm going to put in my contact information and I'm going to put in my email address on the form and no, I'm not 65 years or older. And then yes, I swear or affirm that the information contained herein is true and accurate. I understand that submitting any fictitious name, false figure, false statement, or other fraudulent entry is a felony punishable by not more than 10 years in prison, a fine not to exceed $100,000 or both. And then I click submit and boom, my absentee ballot. I have just live on radio, ladies and gentlemen, I have submitted my absentee ballot request. Now the website again, is Securevote GA.com. All one word, Securevote GA.com. You too can request your absentee ballot. So you don't even have to show up at the polls in November. Just request your absentee ballot. Now, here, here are a couple of things. Uh, your your board of elections, your board of elections will track your absentee ballot application. So if you go back to the secretary of state's website, the secretary of state's website again is uh, sos.ga.gov. And you click on your election on the elections tab. You will see a little tab over on the on the right. It says, where do I vote? MVP. That's my voter page. You could also go to mvp.sos.ga.gov. You, you don't have to remember that. And you'll be able to put in your information and you'll be able to track your absentee ballot. You'll see when the request was made. You'll see when it was processed. You'll see when it was mailed. You'll see when it was received. You'll even see when it was counted. And if it wasn't counted, you will see why it wasn't counted. So you can track your your absentee ballot. You do not have to use the form that comes in the mail from the third-party group. In fact, you shouldn't. You should go through the Secretary of State's website where the Secretary of State produces the form for you online, delivers it automatically to the Board of Elections, and sends it to your permanent address on file. That's all you have to do. They make it super easy for you to be able to do it. There's really no excuse. And you know, you don't know on on election day, is it going to be raining? Is it going to be snowing? Is the virus going to be broken out so bad? Are the lines going to be so long? that you don't even want to go stand in the line. You don't want to socially distance like that. Get your absentee ballot. All of these groups are sending you forms. Go through the Secretary of State's website. Here in Georgia, the Georgia Secretary of State makes it exceedingly easy to do. And you'll be able to get your absentee ballot without all the kooks, conspiracy theories, the nutters, and the like. Uh, So, again, the website, again, if you want to do this, is securevotega.com, securevotega.com, and you'll be able to get your absentee ballot from the Secretary of State, and you'll be able to cast your ballot, and you won't have to rely on those forms. You'll do it all online. It'll make it very easy for you. I, you know, I'm remiss, folks. Um, and Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, the phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is eight seven seven nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. You know, it, so it was going to happen last Monday. And then w- there were technical errors. Uh, man, <laughs> I know the technical errors today. Uh, we got a lot of them today. But uh, WBQO uh, down in Brunswick has joined us at 93.7 FM. Glad to have the folks down there uh, with us. This gives me an excuse to try to find a way to go to Sea Island now that you can get a room down. There. You know, I- I've only been to Sea Island once. I feel like I'm begging, and, and I kind of am. Uh, I-, I, You know, I-, I went to the Cloisters once. I spoke at a conference several years ago. And they put me up in a, it was a beautiful suite. And like, a, it was one of the rooms where, you know, when they had the G8 or whatever, they stayed in these rooms. And I was, I stayed in the, in the room uh, where the Japanese prime minister had said, there was a big plaque on the wall. The Japanese prime minister stayed here. It was gorgeous. I had never been there before and I loved it. Uh, and you know, so at the time, this is so bad y'all. Um, so I was, I did not have a lot of money at the time. And my car was, gosh, uh, it was embarrassing. I literally had duct tape on the car that I took down there. And I didn't realize you, you kind of had to park your car and then they ferry you around in the place. At least they did at the time. You, you, if you were visiting, uh, they basically shuttled you everywhere. You didn't take your own car. And so, I mean, I, I'm in this this old, near broke down Acura uh, with duct tape holding up one of the windows. And all the people are arriving, they're in their Mercedes and whatnot. I barely have any money. My credit card is almost maxed out. And I am pinching every possible penny that I possibly can and go to the bar. I'm trying to be Mr. Sophisticated, grown-up, hanging out with all the rich people, pretending that I am one. And and order a glass of bourbon and <laughs> the pill for the glass of Oh, my gosh. Like I'm, I'm literally going to max out my credit card uh, buying this, and then the guy reaches over and says, "You're one of the speakers. I'll take that." Um, it was, it was so painful. So now that I actually have some means, I'd like to go back and enjoy it at some point. I hear the the men's locker room is fantastic. Um, it, they've got like a great bar set up in there. But I, I'm a terrible golfer. I got to join the Brickyard here and make and and work on my golf game. My kid wants to. As well I'm terrible at golf but now now that I've got an excuse to go down to, to the Golden Isles and go to Brunswick I, I can like go find someone to crash at see so, you know, David Perdue lives to, I could like steal a place at David Perdue's place in any event welcome to those of you in Brunswick I'm glad to have you it is Eric Erickson we're all across the state of Georgia now we got other stuff to talk about including football season. Football season, folks, football season. So so uh, Hudson Mason, he's he's on uh, the fan in Atlanta. His wife, I thought it was very funny, put up an Instagram. We, we follow each other on Instagram. He was headed to bed the other night and he saw a college football game on. And he didn't realize there didn't even know who was playing, didn't know what the score was, and yet was obsessed with watching the game. I think we're all at that point. But you know what happens with football season? It's very much like uh, did the did the groundhog see a shadow or not? It is, did Colin Kaepernick get hired or not? And every single time it is, NBC Sports wants you to know, it's Labor Day, the unofficial end of a summer that began unofficially on Memorial Day. On Memorial Day, George Floyd was murdered. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, a sense emerged that Colin Kaepernick was right all along and that the process of moving forward would necessarily entail putting Kaepernick back in the NFL. The momentum was palpable, at least for a little while. Per a source with knowledge of the situation, there was some fake interest expressed immediately after Floyd's death, seemingly out of guilt. There's been zero interest expressed as to Kaepernick in months. I mean, this really is like the 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 groundhog story. Did the groundhog see a shadow? Did anyone take an interest in Colin Kaepernick or not? Uh, The Babylon Bee actually has a story out on this. I love this. Uh, Headline, rioters declined to sign Colin Kaepernick. (laughs) Colin Kaepernick arrived at the Minneapolis riots last night saying he was excited to be a part of the looting and violence. Kaepernick tried out for the riots by throwing bricks into windows, but missed every time he was able to rush a Molotov cocktail into a target window and then spike it on the ground. But then he caught fire. (laughs) I just... the, The media... The media is way more obsessed with trying to make Colin Kaepernick happen than the NFL is. Maybe at this point, uh, they need to recognize it never was about the protesting. He just simply isn't as great a quarterback as they would have you believe. And yet the media falls for this sort of nonsense all the time. Absolutely crazy. We'll be back. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877 97 Eric 877 973 7425 So do you want brutal and absolute honesty? <laughs> I can't take your phone call. I'm giving you the phone number because look, we've we've got the fine folks down in Brunswick and the Golden Isles now that they're they're on board listening to the program. They need to know they can call it, except you can't call in today. We are having just just technical issues uh, with sound, and so you, you can't call me today, but you should know the number because it'll be fixed by tomorrow. 877-97-ERIC, 877 So, you know... Now, I realize I'm one of the few people on radio that actually regularly does this in large part because I, my background was in TV. I started out in TV. Yeah, I, you don't understand if you're not regularly on television how much people talk to you through an earpiece. Everybody in TV has a little earpiece. It's called an IFB. And uh, you stick in your little ear. I wear one on radio instead of headphones because I live stream. And it just looks silly with these big cans on yours. So I wear my IFB from TV. And they talk to you. And the key to being good on television is being able to continue to talk while people are talking to you in your ear. And I learned that it, it is an acquired skill. Trust me, it is a very acquired skill to be able to have a conversation on television while someone is speaking in your ear. And typically, it's rap. That's what they say, rap. And that means that they're running out of time, so you need to finish your point quick. That's why sometimes on TV, you'll see somebody, they're making a good point, and then all of a sudden, they speed up and stop, and you're like, wait a second, you didn't finish your thought. It's because someone's yelling in their ear that you got to rap. And and it, it, it is an acquired skill. And, and normally in radio, you're in a studio somewhere, and you have someone signaling you in some capacity or... You, posting it on a board that you can see digitally, that uh, it's time to talk. And, And just me with a TV background, typically I just have somebody in my ear say, if you can hear it actually in the live stream, 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds. And I know what 10 seconds got out. Well, we're not doing that today because audio is all one way from me to you and not back. Uh, so I got stopwatches. I got the atomic clock fired up, making sure I'm down to the second so I don't screw up the, locals, uh, the, the local stations because everything in radio is down to the second. I did learn that. One more aside before I move on and bore you to death. So my very first time filling in on radio ever was the day after Christmas. I want to say it was 2004. 2004 maybe and uh kitty bergamy who's now with uh, the farm bureau here in georgia was on in macon at wmac and i told him i, I just i wanted to do radio I wanted to give 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 it a shot and so he let me fill in for him the day after christmas and it had to be 2004 because we did did we have a child no we didn't have a kid yet um, so I, I, we were at my in-laws in Carrollton. I drove back to Macon, uh, Christmas night so that I could be up on the radio at uh, six o'clock the next morning. And, uh, so I actually got there is just this building in downtown Macon and I did not know who to call to tell them that I was there and I was locked out of the building. And and finally, uh, a guy named Neil came down and let me in and I went up there and I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about radio, none and I, I finally said, what, "What? how do I press the buttons? What do I do? And they're like, that's not your job. That's our job. All you do is talk. I talked from six to nine in the morning. I got exactly one phone call. I, there was a story about artificial Christmas trees and some old guy uh, called in and was just enraged at the rise of fake Christmas trees. That was the only call I got. That was the only time I did radio until like 2010. It was like six years before I ever did radio again. <laughs> but, I mean, it was fun. But to this day, believe it or not, I am now nine years into radio, a year into a syndicated radio program. I have no idea how to run a board in the radio. Y'all, it's called job protection. I have asked to learn how to do it in case there was ever an emergency you know like Sean Hannity back in the day uh, Sean Hannity started a little station up near Huntsville Alabama and he had to be his call screener and run his show and run the board all at the same time and he has this very funny story about how he would uh if people would call and he'd just be picking up the phone and putting them on hold while he's talking and then during commercial break he'd go through all the people who, who held on he would go through and he would talk to him try to vet him and then he would call him up but he had to run the board and do everything and hit the commercial breaks and hit the cues and all that stuff. Nowadays, even in little stations, a lot of people don't do that. It's called job protection. A dummy like me can sit behind a microphone and talk for eight hours a day, but I've got no idea how to even turn a microphone on (laughs) or. It just, it, it, it amazes me how 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 it, little fiefdoms crop up and people have some strong job protection. Uh, I I, it, I have no idea how to run a board in radio and everyone seems to think I do. Nope, nope, I have no idea. I just sit behind a microphone. It's all I want to do. I, I don't want to run the business. I just, I want to, and, and I should, I'm a terrible businessman. I just want to talk. Now, I want to talk to you about Georgia politics. Why? Because uh, Kelly Leffler has picked up the endorsement of Mark Butler, the labor commissioner. She has also, as uh, she's got Brian Kemp's endorsement. She, uh, Doug Collins has picked up Gary Black and David Ralston's endorsement. Interestingly enough, uh, the Leffler campaign was unsparing in their attacks on David Ralston endorsing Doug Collins. I want to spend just a moment on this because I genuinely believe it is an unfair attack to attack Doug Collins for criminal representation, particularly of indigent defendants. And I realize if you're not a lawyer, it's not a big deal. You're wondering why would he do this? And, and I want to tell you, uh, Tommy Day Wilcox was the um, senior judge in Bibb County, Georgia, where I practiced law for five years. He just passed away last week. He's a great man. I uh, got a wonderful note from him uh, when I left practicing law, uh, and it, it, he he was a a genuinely good guy. But one of the things you had to do in Bibb County, if you wanted to practice law, and it really I I argue uh, that it it violates the Thirteenth Amendment, and they finally got rid of it. No one was ever going to fight that Thirteenth Amendment fight, but I I it it was unconstitutional in my mind. Uh, if you wanted to practice law, you were required to represent criminal defendants. You you had no choice in the matter. If you were going to practice law in Bibb County, you had to represent criminal indigent defendants because there was not a public defender's office at the time. There's a statewide public defender's office now, but there wasn't for a long time. And I got to tell you, as much as I was, and they paid you. I mean, a pittance. My my hourly rate was something like two hundred dollars an hour. As, a, as an associate lawyer at the law firm I was at, but I think I got $50 an hour and they nickeled and dimed you on everything. But I learned so much from those cases. I learned the mannerisms of the judges and the personalities of the judges. I learned about a part of society that I would have never otherwise encountered. I learned about how common drug addiction is. And how it is just, in some ways, for some people, uh, selling marijuana is just, it's, it's what they do. I learned about how there really are issues with police, that some police officers really are, go beyond what they should as a police officer. And I learned that other police officers actually are fantastic people who you don't see it in the media but they go out of their way to try to move into communities and help build up those communities and sustain kids and keep them out of trouble i learned all sorts of aspects of society i would not learn, not have learned had i not been forced to do what i did not want to do uh, which was indigent criminal defense my first case uh the the guy uh, i've told the story so many times i'll, I'll refrain from telling it now uh the guy was a racist. Uh, said that that the man, the white man, he he planted crack cocaine in his car. No, actually, it was him. Uh, and it, my my last case was a woman who I could I left the practice of law, but I came back to practicing law just to help this woman get out of jail. She was dying. Uh, she died at Christmas. Um, I guess it was two thousand six. Her liver was failing. She had essentially prostituted herself. She had a terrible addiction and drug and alcohol prostituted herself uh stole from her family her family tried to intervene they couldn't help her they ultimately let her go to prison uh because she, her her drug addiction was just out of control destroyed her whole family uh and ultimately was fatal to her and all she wanted to do was get out of jail and, and die at home for christmas and her ex-husband was willing to let her come home uh, to him and and the family and she died with them at christmas and I, I had so many of these stories. I, I never did uh, capital offenses, uh, but I did lots of drug I I never, in all honesty and, and I don't mean this bad, but I never represented an innocent person. I never did. All people are, are presumed innocent in court and and they're entitled to that constitutional uh, belief and they are entitled to representation. But I never represented an innocent person. Uh, I I never actually went to trial with a single person because they were all very clearly guilty. And they were, with attorney-client privilege, willing to admit uh, in various ways that they were guilty. Uh, Almost every single case in five years, almost every single case I dealt with was a drug case. Uh, Almost every single person I represented, it was marijuana. Uh, Almost every single person I represented uh, in selling marijuana or buying marijuana or using marijuana was involved in a gang. Uh, And in almost every single situation, uh, they could not understand why they were being arrested when they were selling it to rich white kids who weren't in trouble. And it it was definitely, it was eye-opening, frankly. It, it, It was revealing and it definitely taught me a lot about the law. How do you practice? How do you how do you navigate with a prosecutor? How do you navigate with a district attorney? How do you negotiate with them? Uh, and and I I was always very sympathetic. I, I I almost became a prosecutor. I interned with the district attorney's office. Was very sympathetic to them. Uh, but it, it was the, the pattern of cases over time was eye opening. So Doug Collins is getting attacked for representing criminal indigent defendants, and I I think that's an unfair attack because. Every defendant is allowed constitutionally to be represented. Now, some of you will say, well, he didn't have to do that. Someone else could have done it. But I, at this point in my life, actually find it commendable that a lawyer who is a law and order person would stand up and represent a criminal indigent defendant and give them the best representation possible. I think that is commendable. And I don't think he should be attacked for that. And the Leffler campaign has done so. But the Leffler campaign is also going after David Ralston, and I love that they're going after David Ralston. For those of you who are new to the program, let's just say I got an issue with David Ralston. Uh, in particular, there is a scandal involving David Ralston, and the um, the the the, the Leffler campaign is capitalizing on that scandal. If you don't know what the scandal is, David Ralston represented for years. Criminal defendants, not indigent. These people were paying him up to twenty thousand dollars. One of them admitted he paid Ralston twenty thousand dollars, knowing that David Ralston would keep his case from ever going to trial. See, right before David Ralston became Speaker of the House, David Ralston changed the law in Georgia so that the Speaker of the House of Representatives never had to go to trial if he was a lawyer. He could uh, he could def- he could postpone any case he wanted. In Georgia, if you're a lawyer and you're in the legislature, you've got a window, I think it's 60 days before and after the legislature convenes where you can defer cases until you're out of that window because you don't want to try to be representing someone in court while you've also got to be in the legislature. The legislature is a part-time job. And so that law was structured to allow lawyers to be in the legislature and not put uh, their clients' cases up for grabs. Well, Ralston changed it so that if you're the Speaker, you could defer cases indefinitely. That any time the Speaker wanted a, a deference, wanted a deferral of his case, he said he had state business and they had to grant it to him. There was no way not to. And some of these cases for eight to 10 years, Ralston was postponing cases. In one case, a woman was beaten up by her boyfriend. And her memory clearly had issues to begin with. And her boyfriend actually went on record admitting he paid Ralston twenty thousand dollars, knowing that uh, his case would never go to trial. and the victim would have to hang on to the memories. In another case, a pastor who was uh, a, a guest pastor was staying at a family's home, molested their daughter. Eight years later, the girl is psychologically traumatized. She is suicidal. And she can't let go of the memories in case the trial ever comes up. And Ralston delays it and delays it and delays it and delays it. Finally, after the media exposure, eight years of this, after the media exposure, the guy finally pleads to inappropriately touching her and never goes to jail, just goes home to Indiana or Ohio or wherever he's from. There were multiple cases like this. And until the media exposed them, none of them were resolved. And it is a scandal. Ralston abused his monetized his ability to defer cases, essentially. Willingly or not, knowingly or not, that's what he did. And the Republicans in the legislature have refused to stand up to Ralston. And this is an issue that is going to haunt the GOP, that they allowed the Speaker of the House to keep men, preachers who molested kids from ever having to face justice. And the Leffler campaign is capitalizing on his endorsement of Doug Collins by pointing that out. And that is fair game. There is a real dichotomy, though, shaping up here in the state, a real divide. You're seeing who's on Brian Kemp's team and who isn't on Brian Kemp's team. We're seeing, for example, uh, Nathan Deal and his wife backing Doug Collins, David Ralston backing Doug Collins, Gary Black backing Doug Collins. We're seeing uh, more up-and-coming Republicans in the state backing Kelly Loeffler, number of sheriffs backing Kelly Loeffler, Mark Butler backing her, Brian Kemp backing her. Uh, we're, we're seeing this real divide in, in the old school, Georgia Republicans and the newer Georgia Republicans, essentially the Republicans who are Republicans and the Republicans who at one time were Democrats. And there's that divide there. Now I like them both full disclosure. I love Doug Collins. I, I have told Doug Collins, he can come on my program anytime he wants. I've defended him from this Leffler attack. Uh, but I think that the David Ralston attack by Leffler is fair game. Uh, that uh, it, it is it is totally fair game for her to point out David Ralston's issues uh, in his endorsement of Doug Collins I want to give a quick tip of the hat to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State. In addition to making it easy for everyone to go online to the Secretary of State's website and securely request an absentee ballot without having to worry about stamps and envelopes in the post office, uh, they've decided to appeal the federal judge's decision allowing absentee ballots postmarked by election day to be counted. Now, in Georgia law, under Georgia law, if your absentee ballot is received by election day on election day if you if your if election day is is November 3rd and your absentee ballot comes in the mail at 5 p.m on November 3rd Georgia has to count it but if your absentee ballot comes the day after the election Georgia does not have to count it that's always been Georgia law democratic activists have decided that if the ballot comes in and it is postmarked by election day you got to count it even if it comes in two weeks later, you've got to count it. And a federal judge, a Democratic appointed federal judge, has ruled that the Democrats should have their way. Uh, And uh, it was Eleanor Ross, U.S. District Judge Eleanor Ross, decided that Georgia's law, which has been outstanding for years, and no one has ever had a problem with it, by the way, Uh, That that we should upend it. Uh, She was appointed by Barack Obama, by the way. And well, Georgia is appealing. Attorneys for Raffensperger wrote that the coronavirus pandemic doesn't justify altering election rules so near the time when voters will begin receiving absentee ballots late this month. Changing the deadline to return absentee ballots will introduce delay and confusion in the election process. This, in turn, risks delaying the electoral college process and disenfranchising voters in Georgia, including preventing voters from casting ballots and runoff elections, according to a motion Friday to stay Ross's preliminary injunction. And that's the other thing people need to remember here is that there could be a runoff. There's going to be a runoff. We got the Senate race, the Leffler Collins Senate race. It's going to a runoff unless one of them gets over 50%. And the odds of that happening are are slim to none. And so you're probably going to have Collins and Leffler going into a runoff against each other. And well, if they're still trying to decide the election weeks after the election is had, then that's going to delay the process, the certification. That's going to delay the ballot. That's going to have to screw up the, the runoff. You could have the entire hold of the United States Senate on hold because of the delay. I I realize Democrats believe every vote should count, but if you can't bother to get your behind to the post office and get in your absentee ballot application ASAP and get it returned ASAP, I really don't have any sympathy for you. I really don't. You know, the post office is going to handle five times as many Christmas cards as they will absentee ballots. And they're going to have those all delivered by Christmas. And you're sorry behind can't get yourself to the uh, mailbox to drop off your absentee ballot upon. I'm sorry. Wait until the last minute. Procrastination should not be rewarded. You're going to you could cast it down, not just the presidency, but the hold of the United States Senate. If, if this goes forward, and this is an activist Democratic judge who really has no basis in law for doing this. Again, no one ever complained until this year. I do not think it is a conspiracy to undermine the integrity of the election. I think the Democrats really have embraced the panic over the virus and really don't want anyone showing up at the polls. And that is going to overwhelm the system. But you know what? Ballots start rolling out later this month. Absentee ballots come out later this month and go on and request your absentee ballot now. If you wait until the week before the election to request your absentee ballot, I really don't have any sympathy on your procrastination and the state should not reward your procrastinating on the biggest issue of our democracy, of our republic, of of our way of doing business and electing people in this country. We should not humor these people and we should not go down this road. Now, when we come back, speaking of the virus, uh, colleges are are resuming. The data is all screwed up. People are freaking out again about the virus. There is data out there. We also need to talk about Disney and Mulan and what they did and what they said they didn't want to do when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Man, sorry. We can't hear down the line, and so I'm having all sorts of issues and got distracted by a story I wanted to talk. Y'all, literally, I I, I nearly missed coming back in because the story is so insane, and I'm scratching my head over it as I'm looking at it again. <laughs> all right, I want to read you this. This is, this is the most bizarre thing. The NCAA, this is the headline. This is the headline of the Washington Post. NCAA rules allow white students and coaches to profit off labor of black ones. Study fines. I should reset. I'm sorry. The story so distracted me. I watched the clock and then suddenly I'm like, oh gosh, I got I to come on this. Th- and I'm, my head hurts from the story. It is Eric Erickson. This is my show. And the phone number you can't call today. Cause man, everything's just wonky around here, but the number you should know it anyway. eight seven seven nine seven eric 877 973 7425 The National Collegiate Athletic Association. That would be the NCAA longstanding policy prohibiting profit sharing with college athletes effectively allows wealthy white students to profit off the labor of poor blackwoods. Of course, there's a racial angle in this. That's the stark conclusion of a new working paper released by the National Bureau of Economic Research. The paper uses revenue and expense data for college athletic departments to trace the flow of billions in annual revenue generated by NCAA sports, particularly basketball and football. The NCAA prohibits college athletes from being compensated for their labor. The rule is rooted in the concept of the student-athlete, a term the association's first executive director coined to help the NCAA fight against workmen's compensation insurance claims for injured football players, as John Solomon, executive director of the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program, puts it. In the 1950s, the widow of a college football player, Ray Dennison, Sued for workers' compensations, death benefits after Dennison, a student on the football team at Fort Lewis A and M, was killed in a football game. The NCAA argued Dennison was ineligible for benefits because he was a student athlete rather than an employee of the university. The Colorado Supreme Court agreed, and the terms have been the cornerstone of the NCAA's defense against profit sharing ever since. Can I? Can I just pause for a moment? Uh, this is a level of revisionism. Yes, that was the first time the defense was argued in court, but it had actually been a a, a a foundation of the NCAA that student athletes were students who played ball. They weren't employees of the university. College sports today bear little resemblance to their amateur origins, The Washington Post continues. We're talking about athletic departments with $100 million budget, said Craig Garthwaite, lead author of the study. That's a commercial enterprise. It's a modern business endeavor, and we thought we should analyze it. To do this, Garth Wade and his colleagues collected revenue data from all 65 athletic departments in the Power Five Conferences, home of the NCAA's top Division One football and basketball programs. From 2006 to 2019, they assembled data from student rosters across all sports in those departments in 2008, including data on the players' ethnicity and hometowns. The data yielded a number of preliminary findings. First- the revenue generated by those athletic departments nearly doubled during the study period from $4.4 billion to $8.5 billion. Nearly 60% of that revenue was generated by football and basketball teams. Much of it derived from the increasingly lucrative sale of broadcast rights. There's so much money, Garth Wright said. And the one group that really is not seeing any real increase in benefits are the players who are risking their health and safety to play the sports. Over the study period, the average annual salary of football coaching staffs nearly doubled from $4.8 million to 9800000 million. Non-coaching administrative salaries doubled as well, but financial support for the athletes, primary tuition aid, room and board, grew 47%. It's morally bankrupt Garthwaite said the NCAA wants it to be amateur for the athletes but none of the rules of amateurism to apply to all the other people in the system <gasps> you see right there you, you, you just just let let's read this one. one line again one line from from this this Garthwaite person what's this Craig Garthwaite There's so much money in the one group that really has not seen any real increase in benefits of the players who are risking their health and safety to play the sports. It's morally bankrupt. The NCAA wants it to be amateur for the athletes, but none of the rules of amateurism to apply to all the other people in the system. Much of the money generated by football and basketball programs is spent on salaries for coaches and administrators and on the construction of facilities for the teams, but millions flow to non-revenue sports. Ah, Here's the catch. Here's the catch. Non-revenue sports like tennis, sailing, and crew, which don't generate substantial revenue and hence are reliant on the profits. And do you know who plays those sports? White people. The students playing those sports tend to be whiter and hail from wealthier neighborhoods than those who play football and basketball. Black students constitute nearly 60% of the roster of football and basketball teams, just 11% of the rosters of all the other sports. Similar racial dynamics are apparent among coaching. The net result white athletes and coaches profit off the labor of black athletes who receive no additional compensation. Now, wait just a damn minute. Excuse my language. This is the way it has always been. And it has nothing to do with race. When these colleges were mostly white, guess what? Football and basketball still generated most of the revenue. And it was used to subsidize things liberals like, like soccer and swimming and crew. And you know what else it subsidizes? The ladies, that's right. It's not just white people who benefit. The women benefit too. The women's basketball teams, they benefit. The ladies' softball team, they benefit too. Women's tennis benefits. Yes, all of those. They're all, See, they're only looking at the men's sports here. I mean, I don't blame them because nobody else looks at the women's sports either, but still. The revenue generating sports, they finally give away the game at the bottom. At the bottom. Listen, they've given you the hot take. It's all race. This is slavery again in sports. Garthwaite cautions that fixing this inequity isn't simply a matter of taking away revenue from squash. Squash, who plays squash except 90-year-old geriatrics? And baseball. And giving money back to football and basketball players, the revenue-generating sports play a major role in funding the women's sports programs mandated by Title IX. So, in other words, this is enough to generate outrage. Oh, and this is a, oh, yep, yep. This is a, a liberal guy writing it. So it's enough to generate racial outrage, but then at the bottom line, it turns out it's actually complicated. Notice the way that this happens. This happens so much in the media now. They take a very complex subject and they give you the hot take at the beginning and only after they've worked you into a frenzy about it, do they actually give you the rest of the story that, you know, these sports also subsidize all the women's. It's not just the white people benefiting. It's the women benefiting by football and basketball. And it is, that's the way it's been. That when when football and basketball were mostly white kids, that's the way it was then too. Title IX, you know, if you got rid of women's sports, you could play these, you could pay these players. But we don't want to get rid of women's crochet international. Nope, we we we, we gotta have competitive crocheting for the ladies. And you gotta have football to be able to subsidize. I mean, can you imagine the outrage in your local women and gender studies department if they got rid of the competitive crocheting? We can't have that. We feminists demand that you give the women money from you men beating each other up on the football field. You're demanded to have more concussions so the women can play crossword puzzles competitively. That's essentially what happens with the women in gender studies. I mean, the the, the grievance departments in general on campus are a whole nother Don't get me started on that. But still, I mean, are are we going to cut the, the, the women's sports so that the black football players and basketball players can get money? Are we? Let's let, uh, over to you, feminist. That's not funny. What are we going to cut? We're not going to cut anything. We're not going to change because it's complicated. It, 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 to, to make this all a race issue is ridiculous. Now, listen, I'm actually in favor of allowing the athletes to profit off their. Listen, if the if the colleges get to profit off the image of these kids, get them started. You know, as an aside, segmented aside here. I have got to know a number of professional athletes in my line of work. I have a a, a number of of famous people listen to this. Believe it or not, famous people are listening to this program right now who are currently or were members of Major League Baseball teams and football teams and basketball teams. And there is a common story that a lot of the people who go to play for professional teams out of college – wind up bankrupt. You never hear from them again. And in large part, it is because they are so busy learning the trade. They don't learn the financial skills. They don't learn. They don't have a Chris Burns, a dynamic money to help them invest. They, They don't have someone. And there are a number of people who are stepping up right now to do that, to teach them. But this actually would be a great way to start building some wealth for these players is in college, allow them under guidance and management to help them. In fact, you could almost see some of the, the, the finance departments at some of these schools having a, teaching wealth management to their students by helping them with the players. I personally think this is a genius idea that I'm just thinking of off the top of my head. See, occasionally I'm good for something. Seriously, you could have the, the, finance, the, the finance department at your school and in, in your school of business could, with the kids in the finance department who want to do wealth management, work with the kids on the football and the basketball and the baseball teams to help them build up their wealth portfolio and teach those kids some wealth management skills along the way. There's a way to make this work, but they're probably not going to do it. They, they should. Have. Listen, I, I'm in favor of, of, of letting these players uh, make some money. Now, of course, there are problems that you have some kids on the team that you've never heard of that aren't famous, that aren't going to make money, but that's life. That's life. But the whole idea that it's somehow racist and that it, it's white kids on crew or the golf team that are making money notice by the way it it, it it there there's a level of pretension in in the name, in in the in the sports that they're picking out sailing and crew does anyone outside of the Ivy league or, or some coastal team have sailing and crew I think not and and that they're making it, you, you could have used other sports tennis and golf and to some degree even baseball although baseball for a lot of the bigger schools does make some money just not as much as football and basketball uh, but, but I mean, you could use tennis. You can use even soccer, frankly. Soccer's one of them. Uh, but Saline and crew, that just sounds so pretentious. Uh, clearly, clearly an Ivy League bias in the report. But to call it morally bankrupt, it's not morally bankrupt. You know, some of these kids are going to be multimillionaires because of the football team. A lot of these young black players on these school teams are going to go into the NFL, and they're going to make mint. Why? Because they got the opportunity in college to play. Should we allow them to monetize that? Yeah, I think we should. But let's not get everybody outraged and distract from the nuance that your women's competitive crossword and cross-stitch would not happen but for the football and the basketball and the baseball. Yes, ladies, you're dependent on the men to get your competitive sports on. Yes, you are. Such is life. This hour of the program is sponsored by True Precision. -precision True-Precision.com is the website. They make my concealed carry gun. Man, y'all, I love True Precision. Uh, I I love that they're a sponsor. I love having a gun sponsor. Now, they don't make guns, but they make the parts to make your gun awesome. So you can buy slides and barrels and upgraded triggers. I got my gun. I worked with them every step of the way to build out my Glock 43X, and it's great. Uh, If you go to true-precision.com, that's their website, true-precision.com. Uh, You can build out your gun, getting slides, barrels. You can get it shipped to you, the parts shipped to you. You can do it yourself at home. Swap out the barrels, swap out the slide. And if you use ERIC at checkout, E-R-I-C-K, you get 10% off your purchase. So you get 10% off uh, an amazing slide or barrel. Uh, you can get the trigger. They, they do SIG, MP, they do Glock. Uh, go check out their website. It is true-precision.com. Thank you so much to them for sponsoring the program and for my awesome gun from them. Uh, and just full disclosure, I was a customer before they were an advertiser. So when I say they're awesome, they're not paying me to say that. They actually really are that awesome. True-precision.com. Have you guys picked up on the level of conspiracy theorism now on the the virus? Listen, I, I understand the legitimate concerns that people are the the vaccine conspiracy stuff. The president actually talked about this. Let me see if I can play this audio without blowing out our audio system here We're with, with the gremlins we're having this morning.
2: Under my leadership, we'll produce a vaccine in record time. Biden and his very liberal running mate, the most liberal person in Congress, by the way, is not a competent person, in my opinion, would destroy this country and would destroy this economy. Should immediately apologize for the reckless anti vaccine rhetoric that they are talking right now, talking about endangering lives, and it undermines science and what's happening is uh, all of a sudden you'll have this incredible vaccine and because of that fake rhetoric it's a political rhetoric that's all it is just for politics because now they see we've done an incredible job and in speed like nobody's ever seen before this could have taken two or three years and instead it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be done in a very short period of time could even have it during the month of october so contrary to all of the lies the vaccine that they're they're politicalized they they'll say anything and it's so dangerous for our country what they say but the vaccine will be very safe and very effective and it'll be delivered very soon you could you could have a very big surprise coming up i'm sure you'll be very happy but the the people will be happy the people of the world will be happy I,
0: i i get that if the vaccine is rushed People aren't going to want to get the vaccine. And there is this increasing sense on the left that the vaccine is going to be the October surprise for the president. And they're not going to get it. Uh, They're just going to refuse to get the vaccine. Listen, if the vaccine is rushed, I'm not going to get it either. It's amazing to me the number of people who are peddling conspiracy theories on the virus and the vaccine. Like the, I got an email this morning from some woman uh, who claims some conspiracy theory about Moderna and the vaccine. And people are going down rabbit holes on the internet with people telling you exactly what you want to hear to begin with. Uh, for example, patenting. Do you know the CDC took out a patent on the genome for SARS back in 2003? Now SARS COVID-19 is a variant of the SARS virus. It's a mutated form of the SARS virus. Uh, and they took out the genome sequence in 2003. But see, 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 they've known all along. They've been working on this. No, the reason that SARS has been known for a while, SARS comes in various forms. The the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome is SARS. Um, the, the, the SARS COVID-19 is SARS. There, there are several other versions of this virus, mutated forms. And the CDC in 2003 did, uh, broke down the genome and then patented it. Now, the reason they patented it is not so they can produce a virus and then a vaccine and make the government rich. No, the government can't profit off their patents. The government does not profit off their patents. But by the government filing the patent, it prohibits private companies from doing so. Therefore, private companies are precluded from profiting off the cures to viruses where the government has patented the genome. Surprise! Now, if you go down the rabbit holes on the internet, you don't hear that at all, but that's the actual God's honest truth. And again, I can lead you to the truth. I just can't make you accept it, but that actually is the truth. Any lawyer who knows patent law knows, like, for example, the government, uh, you can't copyright government stuff. If if the White House sends out a picture tomorrow of the president— you can use that picture because it's not copyrightable in the same way that the government takes out a patent on AstroTurf. You can build off of that without having to pay the government royalties because the government can't profit off that stuff. That's the way it works. And yet people are going down rabbit holes on the Internet telling them otherwise. But now the Democrats, Kamala Harris over the weekend, saying that, oh, no, she's not going to take a vaccine that this administration puts out because it's going to be rushed and bad, which is irresponsible because what she should say is that if it is rushed and bad, she wouldn't do it. But we don't know yet. There are responsible pharmaceutical companies out there that are rushing to make a vaccine, but rushing within responsible means. We'll see whether they do it or not. But the, the conspiracy theorizing out there uh, from the Biden campaign at this point is ridiculous. They've been wanting the entire economy shut down again and now want to peddle some theory that the a viral response would be some government conspiracy to manipulate the election, not to actually keep people safe. That, my friends, is definitionally irresponsible from the Biden campaign, but they think they'll benefit by saying it. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. Welcome to those of you down in Brunswick. Glad to have you with me here. Uh, I, I want to talk about Mulan. Disney was going to release this at the, the, on the solar system. So Tenant Tenet is out. on. They've opened theaters for Tenet. And I want to go see Tenant. And a buddy of mine went to see Tenant last night and said it'll make your head hurt and it's amazing. In fact, everyone seems to say it'll give you a headache, but it's amazing. I, I want to go see Tenet. I love Christopher Nolan films. They make my head hurt generally, but I love them. Um, but but Disney was gonna release Milan in theaters and decided instead to release it on Disney Plus for an extra like 30 bucks. Now, I, I wanna I wanna play, I, I wanna go in the Wayback Machine to last year. And I want to read you this from Reuters. Walt Disney Company chief executive Bob Iger told Reuters on Wednesday it would be, quote, very difficult, end quote, for the media company to keep filming in Georgia if a new abortion law takes effect because many people will not want to work in the U.S. state. Disney has filmed blockbuster movies in Georgia, such as Black Panther and Avengers Endgame, and it would be a blow to the state's efforts to create production jobs if the entertainment giant stopped filming there. Georgia's Republican governor signed into law on May 7 a ban on abortion after a doctor can detect a fetal heartbeat about six weeks into a pregnancy before many women know they're pregnant. The law is due to take effect January 1st if it survives court challenges. It hasn't. Asked if Disney would keep filming in Georgia, Iger said it would be, quote, very difficult to do so if the abortion law is implemented. I rather doubt we will. I think many people who work for us will not want to work there, and we will have to heed their wishes in that regard. Right now, we are watching it very carefully. I don't see how it's practical for us to continue shooting there. That's Bob Iger, last year, talking about georgia signing fetal heartbeat legislation. Well, now we have Mulan has come out, and it turns out that uh, Mulan was filmed in parts of China where the Chinese are engaged in ethnic cleansing. Let me read you this from the Washington Post. Disney filmed Mulan in regions across China, among other locations, in the credits Disney offers a special thanks to more than a dozen Chinese institutions that helped with the film. These include four Chinese Communist Party propaganda departments in the region of Xinjiang, as well as the Public Security Bureau of the city of Turpan in the same region, organizations that are facilitating actual crimes against humanity. It's sufficiently astonishing that it bears repeating Disney has thanked four propaganda departments and a public security bureau in Xinjiang, Xinjiang, a region in northwest China that is the site of one of the world's worst human rights abuses happening today. More than a million Muslims in Xinjiang, mostly of the Uyghur minority, have been imprisoned in concentration camps. Some have been released. Countless numbers have died. Force sterilization campaigns have caused the birth rate of Xinjiang to plummet roughly 24% in 2019. And imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group fits within the legally recognized definition of genocide. Disney, in other words, worked with regions where genocide is occurring and thanked government departments participating in the genocide for their help in making the movie. In 2017, Communist Party officials in the area faced a problem. Like officials throughout the region, they had begun to round up Muslims and send them to concentration camps. But Muslim students from other parts of the country were returning home and asking officials where their parents were. So officials prepared a detailed question and answer guide. They're in training school, officials were chillily taught to reply. They have very good conditions for studying and living there, and you have nothing to worry about. The answer couldn't be further from the truth. Why did Disney need to work in Xinjiang when it didn't? There are plenty of other regions in China and countries around the world that offer the starkly beautiful mountain scenery present in the film. But in doing so, Disney helps normalize genocide. It's unclear exactly. I'm still reading for the Washington Post here. It's unclear what the Mulan story's relationship with Xinjiang is, Disney didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Some of the crew members, such as the production designer Grant Major, spent months in and around Xinjiang... While well, the director, Nicky Caro visited Xinjiang at least once on a scouting mission in September 27. Disney executives had thought the original Mulan would please the Chinese government, but Disney had distributed Kundun, a film glorifying the Dalai Lama, and Beijing restricted the studio's ability to work in China. We made a stupid mistake in releasing Kundun, then CEO Disney Michael Eisner told Premier Zhu Rongji in 1998. I want to apologize, Eisner said, and in the future, we should prevent this sort of thing which insults our friends from happening. And since then, Disney has endeavored to please Beijing. Now, the Washington Post points this out. In 1946, Disney released Song of the South, glorified life on a plantation in painfully racist terms, a shame Disney pulled the film and it's hard to find a copy. And now here comes Mulan. It is filmed in parts of China where there is, it is beyond dispute globally that China is engaged in ethnic cleansing and genocide. And Disney went there to film a film that amounts to Chinese propaganda to placate the Beijing communist masters of China. And we're supposed to go watch it and enjoy it? I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, I like the original Milan. I I think the original Milan film was was good. It was it was a a cartoon. I liked it. My kids like it. Uh, y'all, I'm sorry, um, but f- watching a a movie that is filmed in areas where genocide is happening, that is designed to promote the propaganda of the country committing the genocide and thanking uh, those committing genocide for helping. How is this any different? How would this be any different if Disney went to Dachau during World War II and filmed a film in Dachau and had the Nazis assist them with it and thanked... Lenny Revenstahl and the Nazis for helping with the production? Lenny Rosenthal, the the PR propaganda master for Hitler? How is this any different than Disney going to an area of concentration camps in World War II and filming a pro-German movie? How is this different if Disney went to One of those areas in World War II to film Beauty and the Beast, a live-action version of Beauty and the Beast, and had the Nazis help. This really isn't different. I realize... That the globe has not yet started standing up to China, and some countries are so indebted to China right now, they can't. This is one of the dirty little secrets about China right now, is they're going around the world and making really, really, really lavish loans to poor countries. And once the countries get those loans they are so indebted to China, the Chinese essentially begin to take over their foreign policy. And they can't uh, – China will call the loan if they dare to criticize China, and so they can't. But the Western world should be standing up. The Western world should be criticizing them. The Western world should be taking issue with this stuff, and they're not. And you know, again, the, 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 there's something telling here. Let's focus on ABC for a minute, if we can. ABC has ABC Nightly World World News Tonight with David Murr now. ABC's World News Tonight is produced by ABC which, like ESPN, is owned by Disney. If ABC's World News Tonight were to do an in-depth special on Disney uh, commending the propaganda masters of China who are committing genocide, what do you think would happen? Well, first of all, ABC's Nightly News is not going to do that story. They're not going to do that story because they're owned by Disney. In the same way that ESPN, when people would stand up at basketball games that ESPN was covering and they would hold up signs in favor of Hong Kong, uh, ABC would cut the cameras or ESPN would cut the cameras. They, they would send the camera someone else, somewhere else because ABC can't take that stand because Disney depends on China's box office. And Disney is committed to keeping the Chinese communist overlords happy. But the spillover effect is all too real here now. Because CBS has Viacom and Paramount. What happens when the new Star Trek movie comes out, if it ever comes out? That's Paramount-produced film. They want access to the Chinese box office. If CBS's nightly news is critical of China and covers this, what's going to happen? They're not going to have access for Paramount. You can see the day is coming where CNN's editorial independence is going to come to an end, with Warner owning CNN. Because what if CNN were to do a story about Disney shooting this film in areas of ethnic cleansing? What if CNN were to do a story about Disney thanking the propaganda masters of a communist regime when those propaganda masters themselves are helping cover up the genocide and the ethnic cleansing of an entire region of China? Well, do you think the next Harry Potter franchise is going to make it into the Chinese box office? I mean, CNN is owned by Warner. Warner has Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers produces a slate of films. Are they going to have access to the box office or NBC, which is owned by Comcast, which owns Universal Pictures? Are Universal's movies going to be able to make it into the box office? Let's take Christopher Nolan's tenant which is produced by Warner Brothers, which is being, which which actually went to Chinese theaters first. If CNN did a story about the Uyghur populations, ethnic cleansing and their extermination, would Warner Brothers have been able to get Tenet into Chinese theaters to boost its box office numbers over $100 million uh, to make it the most, uh, the, the highest grossing movie of this year because of the pandemic? Would they have been able to do that? Ironically, you know, the only news that is now able to, to criticize China and to cover China accurately is Fox because Fox stole its movie studios to Disney. The New York Times has run paid supplements from the People's Daily in China, which is the Communist Party propaganda arm. The Washington Post has done the same, although the Washington Post is now saying they're not going to do that anymore. We'll see. The Washington Post, of course, have just has Jeff Bezos propping it up. Amazon would like to make inroads into China. Uh, what if the Chinese shut down Amazon in China, hurting Jeff Bezos, uh, so that Jeff Bezos had to clamp down on the Washington Post, which he owns. The New York Times is independently run, but the New York Times has accepted all sorts of revenue from uh, the Chinese, including the People's Daily Supplements. Can the New York Times run something? I'm. I, listen, uh, kudos to the Washington Post for running this piece on Disney in the opinion section, not in the news section, in the opinion section. Lots of news, but it's got to be opinion so that the Washington Post, well, our, our reporters aren't covering this. Premier Xi? We're reaching a point where you got to question not just the political coverage of the media because of their biases about against Donald Trump, but you got to question the media coverage of what's happening in China. Because as our media companies consolidate and own all of the film studios, and the film studios require access to the chinese box office to become profitable particularly disney disney which now owns marvel disney owns all of the, the uh, disney owns all of the all, all of the the theme parks they've got one in shanghai you've got those You've got Marvel, they own they own Star Wars, they now own 20th Century Fox, which they're referring to now as 20th Century Films. They've dropped the Fox Studio branding from it. They, they've made all of these big purchases and they're dependent on the Chinese box office for profitability at this point because the parks are closed in the United States. Disney is going to turn a blind eye to what's happening. In China. And when Disney turns a blind eye to what's happening in China, they allow the communist propaganda masters to get away with this sort of stuff. And in getting away with this sort of stuff, they can continue this sort of stuff. And the American media can't cover it because the American media depends on the revenue source from China. They're not really as independent as they'd have you believe. Breaking news here at the end of the show. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson. Uh, Breaking news. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, has just announced that a thousand Georgians voted twice in the June 9th primary, which is a felony. Uh, The voters returned absentee ballots and then showed up to vote on election day, June 9th. County election officials are able to stop double voting most of the time, but they can't catch everyone. And he wants these people prosecuted. There were 150,000 people who requested absentee ballots and then showed up at polling places on election day, often because they never received their absentee ballots in the mail or decided to vote in person instead. Of those, a thousand voters had returned their absentee ballots and poll workers allowed them to vote in person. That's not the way the system's supposed to work. Now, Raffensperger wants everyone to know that the double voting did not change the outcome of elections, but it's still a felony. So here's what typically happens. you, I, Live on the program earlier today, I requested my absentee ballot. It will come to me. If I don't mail it back in, I can show up on election day and vote in person. If I do turn it in, what is supposed to happen is that it's logged as me having returned my absentee ballot. And when I go show up at the polls, I can't vote on the machine. I have to vote with another absentee ballot. This time it's labeled a provisional ballot. And they have to go in, find my absentee ballot, tear it up, and then they can count my provisional ballot. And when I go to the polls, I'm supposed to acknowledge that, yes, I sent in my absentee ballot, but I've changed my mind. I've decided that that person I'm voting for no longer is worth my vote. I want to come vote against that person. And so give me a provisional ballot. Some people, though, send in their absentee ballots. They arrive on election day or close to election day, the system is not updated. So they go vote and they're not listed as having returned their absentee ballot so they can vote. And that's what happened in these thousand cases. So the question is, do they remember that they mailed in their absentee ballot? And if if so, they've committed a felony. If they didn't, if if they're reasonably forgot, it was so long ago and it was a screw up. But if they mailed it like three days before and then they go vote, yeah, that they they're, the presumption there's they're trying to commit fraud. So a thousand voters did this and and didn't get, this by the way, again, this is why we should not be counting absentee ballots after the day of the election, even if they're postmarked on election day, we shouldn't be counting uh, those ballots. So this is breaking news here at the end of the program. Brad Raffensberger says there are a thousand people in Georgia who it appears they cast their absentee ballots and their ballot was counted. And then they intentionally showed up at polls and voted again at the polls. They didn't get caught by the system, which is supposed to log that their absentee ballot. But at my presumption now, I don't know the details here and the AJC doesn't go into it, but I know how this happens. You wait until the last minute to mail in your ballot. You wait like the day before, so it shows up on election day, which requires they count it. But because it shows up on election day, they haven't logged that you actually showed up at the uh, showed up with your absentee ballot, and they haven't logged that you showed up at the poll. So they count both votes. And when that happens, you, you've cast your absentee ballot, and then you show up, and you've taken no affirmative steps to say, hey, I cast an absentee ballot. I want you to cancel it and let me vote provisionally. That's on you. That's not on the poll workers, and they're going to go after it. Um, now, here's the thing. There were 1.15 million people who cast absentee ballots, and 900,000, and now today, 900,001, uh, have requested absentee ballots for November. That's a thousand votes out of 1.15 million absentee ballots. It wasn't enough to change any election outcome. But it's enough to make you question the the integrity of the election. And there are going to be people, and by the way, it's not just Democrats who do this. It's Republicans do it as well. Across the board, people do this, and it undermines the integrity of the process. And in undermining the integrity of the process, it casts doubt on the legitimacy of the winner. And both sides at this point, this is not just a Democrat issue, y'all. It is on both sides are already beginning the conversations on casting doubt. If your guy doesn't win in November, the odds of you accepting the election continue to decline because of these sorts of things. Now, he Raffensperger should pursue this. It shows that they're able to catch these people. It shows that you can audit an election and weed out these sorts of problems. But it also shows that the system is not bulletproof. There are flaws in the system, and there are people who will work the flaws in the system to try to undermine the integrity in the process. And again, if it's not close, they can't cheat. So you need to show up and vote for your guy and overwhelming numbers to try to win the election so we don't have a close election in this country. See you all tomorrow.